0: It has been a long and challenging journey with many bumps in the road. We believe that mutual respect will gradually lead to the peaceful reunification of China under a system of democracy, freedom, and equitable distribution
1: of wealth. Welcome to Current Affairs Taiwan. I'm your host, Donovan Smith. With me today is Sean Su, longtime political activist and part of the communications team during the Sunflower Movement. Welcome to the program, Sean. Hello. All right, today we will be discussing former Lee Dun, President Lee Li Hui, who tragically passed away at the age of 97. Dubbed by the media Mr. Democracy, he is considered the father of Taiwan's modern democracy and by some the father of the free, locally ruled country we have today. He is one of the few leaders in history who started with the full powers of an authoritarian state and voluntarily stepped down, leading to Taiwan's first transfer of power to an opposition party. I personally arrived in Taiwan as a teenager during the first months of his presidency. Sean, what are your thoughts on his passing?
0: Uh, I do think this is uh, considered very important. Um, If this were happening in China, the PRC, I think people would be coming out, or North Korea, for example, people would be coming out and crying on the streets, and you know, uh, the fact that that thought kind of crossed my mind, uh, I think, and some others, uh, shows how important he is. Taiwan exists today as a democracy, in large part because of Li Hui. Even those too young to quite remember his presidency, You know, have been directly affected uh, by you know the changes he made in their upbringing so uh, i do know that the older generation is definitely quite uh they have mixed feelings obviously if you're pan blue you might not have liked him so much but i do know that definitely for the pan greens he will be sorely missed uh, i do know many have wished that he could live on forever maybe be immortal such as a uh, you know how some british people think queen elizabeth will live forever there's many that would have wished to have seen uh president, former president lee survive to well over a hundred years.
1: Yeah, well, he's he was older than uh, than uh, Queen Elizabeth, so. Oh
0: yeah, yes, yes. Uh, well, you know, you know how how there's this uh, ongoing joke in in the United Kingdom where Queen Elizabeth will is actually immortal. Uh, you know, <laughs> I actually felt that. You know, I wish Lee Teng was basically like that. I would have been happy to see him outlive me, considering the contributions he gave to Taiwan's yeah. democracy.
1: Yeah. I I mean, he's, he's always been one of my personal heroes and I was lucky enough to get him, get to see him speak and boy, he has an interesting accent. Um, I, he spoke, uh, he spoke Mandarin with, it's very weird because he had sort of a Japanese accent and sort of a Taiwanese accent, Mm. but the Mandarin that he spoke was clearly studied from, those mainlanders who just arrived. So his vocabulary was weirdly mainland China style, and so it was a weird mishmash of accents. It wasn't like a modern Taiwanese uh, Mandarin accent. It's very an un- unusual one. But yeah, I, I put him up there with you know with George Washington and Nelson Mandela. Uh, I mean, it's it, he's a really remarkable man. I th- I, I think.
0: Perhaps his accident is why he was able to uh, embed himself among the KMT for such a long time without, quote unquote, being discovered for who he really was was uh, one of the things yeah. I've heard from uh, friends that speak Japanese very well, or who are part of the Japan-Taiwan Students Associations and so forth, is that they feel that Li Denghui is, has a very strong Japanese accent, especially yeah. when he speaks <laughs> Japanese. Um, and of course, because Li Denghui had quite an interesting life where he grew up under the imperial Japanese uh, for since the 20s. An adult when the KMT came, he did join the Imperial Japanese Army. So mm, he was he was an officer. Yes, Air, he aircraft,
1: was anti-aircraft uh, gunner. I think. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So let's get back to his history in just a second. Um, a lot of well, actually, um, well, a lot of people expressed their sorrow today and and passed on their condolences. One I thought that was quite interesting is from U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. He said, on behalf of the American people, I would like to offer my sincere condolences on the passing of former President Uh, Lee Deng-hui. He's sorry. He said former Taiwan president, which is significant. Lee Deng-hui. As Taiwan's first democratically elected president, Lee helped put an end to, to decades of authoritarianism and ushered in a new era of economic prosperity, openness and rule of law. During his 12 year tenure, Lee's bold reforms played a crucial role in transforming Taiwan into the beacon of democracy we see today. He cemented the deep friendship between the United States and Taiwan. Our thoughts and prayers are with the people on Taiwan, and we will honor President Lee's legacy by continuing to strengthen our bond with Taiwan and its vibrant democracy through shared political and economic values. So I thought that one was interesting. Were there any, were there any um,
0: condolences that you thought were particularly interesting? Uh, yes, I actually saw the one from, uh, President Tsai. Although, uh, given at this time, I'm actually a little, I have a difficulty, some, some difficulty remembering exactly what you said. I don't have the quote in front of me. Do you happen to have that? I, I, I looked at the, um, at the
1: quote that was in, uh, Focus Taiwan and it was all paraphrased. So I don't have the exact quote.
0: Okay. Well, I I saw a lot of quotes from, uh, friends, uh, I'll, also, including uh Ting Ye from uh, Karagalan Media, mm-hmm. and he had he again. You have to read his Twitter um, and Karagalan Media's uh, uh, Twitter, and they had he had written uh, a really succinct. Of course, he has a way of wor- with words, a rather succinct way of describing um, uh, Li Denghui's legacy, and um, you know how. Of course, all over Twitter, I saw lots of people writing, uh, and not just Twitter, Instagram, uh, Facebook, Discord, uh, even Reddit just expressing how they wished he would have just been around longer. Uh, It really does cement uh, the fact that 2020 has been one hell of a year and we did lose a lot of really good people, yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, Ketagalan Media, by the way, uh, I highly recommend uh, all of our listeners to check out Ketagalan Media, it's a, a great outlet. Uh, and ting is the editor there and he's a great guy. So, but all right. So getting back to his personal history now, he was, uh, he was in the, the, you know, he was in the Japanese military. He studied in Japan and he was part of a group of people. They were Marxists and he came back and he joined the communist party. His friends got arrested, but he managed to escape. That Now, that's, I think, very interesting. There are a lot of rumors around that. Essentially, what happened is, I mean, there's rumors that he sold people out or these kinds of things, but there's nobody really knows. But what is known is that he left the Communist Party and later he was quoted as saying something along the lines of communists don't understand humanity or something like that. And he kept his head down. He became uh, an he studied agriculture in the uh, I think agricultural science or agriculture in the United States at Cornell. So he was obviously a very well educated, smart guy, and he was kind of talent scouted by the KMT, and he joined the KMT in 1971, and they they moved him up, you know, step by step, and he was. Spotted by Zhang Jingguo, who was trying to bring in more Taiwanese. And since after 228, of course, a lot of the intelligentsia, the educated Taiwanese had all been killed. Um, you know, there was kind of a shortage of qualified, educated Taiwanese. And here he was one of the exceptions. Mm-hmm. And so he was brought in eventually. Uh, I believe it was 1980. He became Taipei mayor. Uh, after that, they appointed him to the governor of the Taiwan province. And then finally, he was brought in as vice president. And then, of course, uh, then, of course, Cheng Jingguo passed away and then the presidency passed to him. Now this is that period is, I think, really interesting. The period of transition from one party rule to open elections was a bit touch and go. Uh, Many in the KMT were not as keen as he was to move to democracy. So we're talking about the late 80s through the early 90s. So he became president in January, late January of 1988. And of course, the KMT was still, at least on the national level, was still a one party state. Martial law had been technically lifted the year before, but there were these new security laws that were basically martial law light. The fearsome Taiwan garrison command was still still a thing. People were still being thrown in jail for saying, you know, Taiwan independent should be independent and they would throw them in jail, although for shorter periods than they did under martial law. There were still a lot of people exiled and when I arrived, people were very reticent to talk about politics for the most part because the legacy of martial law and because of the security laws that they just put in, which again were pretty serious. Um So he came in and, of course, there was, uh, you know, a lot of jockeying within the party. And he did some really clever things. And and we talked about some of this before the show. And you gave, I think, probably the preeminent example uh, in his choice of premier.
0: Li Denghui appointed uh, the Minister of Defense, Hao Bochen, to premier, which was great because it stopped and prevented a potential military coup. And he also did a lot of other things. Uh, he outmaneuvered uh, Chang loyalists. Uh, they called them the palace faction uh, after Hao mm-hmm. H- was fired as premier in 1993. Actually, he, he did a lot of political maneuvering during this really, I would say, I don't want to use the word chaotic period because of how smoothly he seemed to have control. It was a chaotic period. It, yeah, it was a very chaotic period, but he. I was here. It was chaotic. I was in the States. I know a lot of people were arguing back then. Uh, uh-huh. Yeah, like for instance, in 1996, um, you know, a lot of. Uh, Taiwanese-American or even just first-gen immigrants uh, diaspora from Taiwan were really uh, aggressively disliking uh, Li Dong But I do remember that towards the 2000s, just four years later, their attitude towards him were basically almost flipped around, although he was still technically on the wrong team in their eyes. Um, but yeah, that move with... Uh, Uh, by installing your enemies into, you know, positions of power is a very Lincoln-like move. Yeah, I mean, I can give some
1: other examples of kind of the the things he had to do. So because there was a lot of suspicion in the KMT of him not being pro-unification, he set up the Unification Council to, in theory, move uh, move forward a unification agenda with China but there's two things about it that are quite quite, in, quite interesting part of it was that basically part of that was about is it put in some restrictions in other words saying that Taiwan, you know china had to become a democratic country and things like this within that that meant that it pushed it pushed any potential unification further back and the other thing that was interesting and i was just reading this today from someone's account where there was this was you know woofy and some of these u s and you know fop and some of these other u s based groups and and they met with him, and they were really upset about this, and he basically told them, he said, "Look, what you need to do is protest this. You need to go out there and protest." In other words, he was working the other side so that it would give him an excuse. To make it more difficult to ha- actually have unification, because then he'd say, oh, well, you know, I have to respond to the public opinion. So he would do a lot of things like that. He would do something that would make the it would please the, you know, the base in the KMT on, on the surface, but undermine it at the same time. And, you know, but I think one of his most genius moves was his response to the wild lily movement. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, for the for um, listeners who who are not familiar with it, the wild lily movement started in 1990 and it was mostly a student led thing, Um, basically the kind of the precursor to the sunflower movement. And all these students came together. And keep in mind, it was still a one party state. And, and so this was a period that there was, it was still scary and the the national security laws, if they had been actually used and applied in this case, a lot of people could have gone to jail. So there was genuine potential danger here to these students, but Lee didn't use those laws. There was, the students were left alone. So these large protests came out and then he personally went and met with the protesters and basically what they were demanding was open elections for the legislature for the national for a new national assembly direct elections for the presidency and he basically over the next few years gave them pretty much everything that they had asked for and one of the most you know first things that he he, he finally managed to do was change the constitution And he had to get it through his own party and he managed to do it. They changed the constitution so that the legislature could be elected directly in Taiwan rather than in China, because at the time, most of the legislature was made up of these ancient people. You know, they'd wheel them in in wheelchairs and they had colostomy bags and all of this because they'd all been elected in 1947 in China. So they were all representing constituencies in China. And so they'd wheel all these old geezers in. And finally, they got this constitutional change that meant that basically the legislature was almost entirely made up of legislators elected in Taiwan with a few exceptions. There was overseas uh, Chinese also had some uh, legislators as well. But basically, yeah, so that was I mean, that was a really dramatic shift. And by 1996, of course, he he was, you know, he was elected president. And that was a very interesting election because it was the first direct election in Taiwan for the presidency. And by this point, the legislator had finally been locally elected for the most part. So it was that was kind of the capstone on that transition. What, what, what do you remember? What, what do you think about that 1996 election?
0: Back then, I was very young. So that's the first thing. Mm-hmm. I'm still a millennial. Uh, we can't, of course, forget about the 1996 missile crisis, which you know Li Denghui uh, maneuvered easily around China. So China had lobbed these missiles into the Taiwan Strait and were telling you know uh, the Taiwanese people how to vote, quote unquote. And of course, that is uh, was it the third uh missile, the third Taiwan Strait missile crisis? Yes, yeah, the third Taiwan and, crisis. Yeah, Taiwan, Taiwan, Taiwan Strait crisis. Yeah. Yeah, and I think there was even some sort of tidbit where like Li Denghui told the Taiwanese people to not be afraid, and even mentioned that some of the missiles were dummies, which unfortunately I think burned a spy. I maybe yes, that was one of his <laughs> one of the few mistakes I think he made during his presidency. Yeah, yeah, Li uh, Donghui wasn't. I don't believe he had a time machine, but he did make a lot of really strong choices. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, again, it's just one of those things where he 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 took conscious moves. Like you were saying earlier about the wild lily movement. What I do remember is that he re- the first day when he had his his term, and he actually welcomed a whole pile of them into the presidential office. You know, inside, and he even hmm. said, "We, su- I supported your goals. I support, uh, uh, you know, you know, your wants for democracy." And we'll have it in a couple months, and and it did. I think either that summer or fall that you know Taiwan was when Taiwan started doing those reforms. So, in terms of 1996, yeah, I I just remember a lot of Taiwanese parents talking about it. But again, I am diaspora, so being overseas, even then a lot of parents were really afraid to talk to their children about what was going on in Taiwan. So ironically, a lot of Taiwanese American friends, uh, including myself, learned more from the news, from our history class. So I remembered when um, one of my high school teachers said that, uh, oh, Taiwan has turned into a democracy. They're they're just having their, their first presidential elections. And a couple of Chinese-American students stood up and actually argued against a teacher. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that, I guess, is my experience.
1: Yeah, I, I, I was here for that election, and it was really interesting to watch. Um, I mean, people were were afraid of the missiles. They were afraid China w- would attack. The U.S. responded by sending an aircraft carrier near Taiwan. It did not go through the, the Taiwan Strait, which... A lot of people get that wrong because of the name it was just in the area it was the uss independence ironically enough mm. um and but there was four candidates and the there was the lee dang was of course the kmt candidate Peng ming min who uh was a hero of the democracy movement and had uh was smuggled out of the country it's a very dramatic story and ended up um in sweden um and uh, there was uh, an NPP, sorry, an, an NP, a new, a new, new party, party candidate. And the new party at the time was pretty big. Now they're this real extreme fringe party. But at the time, they're much closer to the center. Um, and then there was a fourth independent candidate. But Lee won with about, uh, was it 54, 56% of the vote. He pretty s- solidly won it. Pang Min Min of the DPP got... Twenty some odd percent. I can't remember the exact number, but it was only about a quarter, roughly, uh, of the electorate. Um, so it was a very tense time because of the miss missiles. Um, but it was it was also really kind of exciting because there is there was both that fear and at the same time there was a lot of optimism. And I remember a lot talking to a lot of people, and they're like, "Yeah, we're going to vote for him, even." whether they were pro kmt or even if they were anti kmt a lot of people were voting for him because he had changed so much and done so much to bring in democracy and they thought that you know they you know this was kind of in a sense almost like his reward for doing that and so they wanted to see him continue to see through his program of democracy, democratizing taiwan so he 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 won quite
0: handily Uh, Which I thought was really quite interesting. 54%, if I remember correctly. Yeah, Yeah. I think it was 54, yeah. Yeah, and then I remember uh, the Democratic Progressive Party won about 20-something. Interestingly, Frank Scheer was vice president, still very active in politics, and um, and the new party, yeah, 1993 was the party that split off from the KMT because they felt uh, the KMT was losing its way uh, under Lee Teng actually. So yeah, yeah, and they they, want, they they initially came out as kind of a
1: non-corrupt KMT. That that was really kind of their initial. And uh, or advertisement
0: advertise that as that way yes
1: yeah but, but i mean the thing is the party had a broader tent early on and then yeah. there was by the, in the late 90s there was a lot of infighting and the extreme unificationists took over the party and a lot of the more moderate members left at that point
0: which is something I think the KMT is still paying for to this very day. Uh, I did see somebody else actually write that, um, you know, because they chose not to follow Li. I do believe if the KMT had followed Li Denghui uh, to have a more sort of uh, Taiwan-focused approach as opposed to a China-focused approach, that uh, the KMT might actually still be in power to this very day. Uh, But they didn't. And therefore, it gave the DPP and other parties a wide berth.
1: Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Once I, I think a lot of it is he was kind of, I, you know, I, I, I when Lianzhan took over as the party chair after Li, Li Donghui left in 2000, and then the party dumped him basically. <laughs> yeah. And there was that big struggle within the party. And I, I suspect that Li Denghui was wrong about Chan because Chan was Taiwanese. But so he, I think he thought that Chan was a lot more centrist than he really was. And he turned out to be much more pro-unification and all that. So I kind of feel like Li misjudged Chan Because you remember there was that point where he had appointed him premier And he was like the defense secretary. And there was like he held like three different posts. So he really relied a lot on Lian Chan and he seemed to trust him. And, you know, he he backed him over James Song, Song Zuyu, And that's, of course, when Song Zuyu bolted and founded the People's First Party because he was so upset. Um, But, of course, Li Donghui had good reasons for not wanting to go with James Song. And I think part of it was that he was a mainlander, but the other was, and this is something that's not often remembered yep. now, but, and this was the reason I personally did not like James Song at all. What he did is that when he was the, the governor of Taiwan province, he went out and he made promises to every little Lijiang out there, You know, to every little, you know, neighborhood bureau, borough chief and all these promises. Oh, sure. We'll repair the dike here and we'll put in irrigation here. So he was making all these promises. That was it was some staggering amount of money, something like double the the Taiwan provincial budget. And he basically just turned around to the central government under Li Denghui and just kind of like. Shrugged his shoulders and said, what are you going to do about it? And basically what what Song was doing is he was going out there and essentially buying loyalty and support all around the country on as his position as, as the provincial governor. But he did it by basically screwing over the central government and getting them to pay for it. And I think Lee was pretty, pretty
0: pissed with him at that for that. I do think, yes, he was probably um, angry about that, to put it lightly. Well, it was a huge issue at the
1: time. Most people forget about that now. <laughs> uh,
0: there is a lot of people that do say that um, Li Denghui actually pretended to support Yin San, who in 2000 was actually very unpopular. Yeah. yeah. Well, he's not very charismatic. Uh, and no. as
1: soon as, you know, Li had stepped down... Then, I mean, Lianzhen wasn't terribly popular before, but then he, you know, as soon as Li Denghui was no longer the the KMT party chair or the president, then he just took a very deep blue
0: turn, which made him even less popular. Yeah, and or maybe he was trying to hold on to power by appealing to the old guard. Uh, I'm not certain myself, I'm not certain about that. But I do Mm -hmm. know that no matter what, Li Denghui, by doing so, managed to tear the KMT apart uh, in many ways. Because then you have Soong running off to his own thing, you have factional politics just exploding all over in the KMT. Um, There was the new party now uh, with Liao, right? Uh, and then that mm. actually gave the DPP a great chance to win. Yeah.
1: Uh, and, you know, and they won, they just squeaked through in that 2000 election when Chen Shui-bian won, you know, and it was a, it was, you know, for a long time there with the, the, the opinion polls had it basically tied three way. It was really quite a dramatic election. But the pan-blue vote between James Sung and the, and the People's First Party wasn't founded yet but because he, he was then just an independent. Yeah,
0: he was independent. Sorry. Yeah. And and there was a the, – the new party only won a tiny figure. Uh,
1: By that yeah. point, they'd shrunk. Yeah. yeah.
0: But I mean, uh, Lian Zan, if James Sung and Lian Zan ran together, it, it, the, if the party didn't split, they would have easily trounced uh, Chen shui Oh, easily
1: in 2000. Yeah. But they did come together and run together in
0: 2004 and still lost. Uh, well, you know, by then time. <laughs> but that, that was four years later. And and there was an incumbent advantage. But and, and of course. And the shooting. Uh, well, the shooting. Yes. <laughs> there was only a tiny. Uh, I mean, the, the
1: margin that he won by was tiny and he was behind in the polls before Election Day. And then, of course, the shooting. You don't have to have a very large percentage of the population shift. You know in sympathy, you know even if he only got well, I think it was like one percent of the of the voting public shifted in as a sympathy vote, that was enough to put him over the top.
0: What I personally think it was was that it, it wasn't so much as a lot of KMTers decided, oh, well, you know, the opposition guy who I don't like got shot, so therefore I'm going to vote for him. But I definitely think it did rally a lot of uh, greens that might not have come out to vote to definitely come out to vote uh, in that case, in that kind mm-hmm. of sympathy, yeah. Yeah. And I think it shifted some
1: people who were on the fence as well. Yeah. No, I don't think deep blue, deep blue people were going to vote for him regardless. Uh, No, no. I think that's, that's, in that
0: aspect, I feel the sympathy vote worked. However, I I did read articles and people saying at the time that there were KMT people that voted for Chen Sui-bian because he got shot. And I just found that very implausible. Oh, there's lots of light
1: blues who I could see doing that. Oh, you know, well, the kind of people who might say, vote for your local factional, Paul. You oh, know, you're OK. In yeah. yeah. And you yeah. always vote KMT because you're your local, you know, your local faction.
0: No, you know, I, that definitely they, does happen. Yes. Yeah. Yeah.
1: It, it, you know, if, if you're thinking of Taipei KMTers now, they're, they're a totally different bunch. <laughs> but down here in central Taiwan, yeah. we get a different brand of KMTer down here. no oh. Oh, boy. So, um, all right. So we were talking about the KMT splitting. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that one of the groups that split off, and they were quite big for a while, they, they actually had a lot of influence for a few years there, was the Taiwan Solidarity Union. Mm-hmm. And they broke away from the KMT, but they chose Li Donghui as their spiritual head. He never formally joined the party. But they were they were actually essentially pro-Taiwan independence. Originally, they were planned to be kind of a centrist party, but pro-Taiwan independence. And they broke away from the KMT, which a lot of people don't realize or remember today. But they were basically a lot of the KMTers who had been in the party, I think, probably just because back in the day, everybody was if you want to get ahead. And, and they broke away. And they, they actually had some serious electoral pull for a while there.
0: Yeah, there were Lee loyalists. Uh, lead Yeah, loyalists. they were Lee loyalists yeah. definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So, do you, now that didn't really
1: take off the way you hoped though in the in, in the long run. So, I mean, what do you think Lee's legacy
0: is? Well, I mean, he definitely is Taiwan's father of democracy, uh as you mentioned and others have. He is compared to like Lincoln how he masterfully um Actually, there is another piece of legacy. It made the KMT very, very paranoid about young people or uh, Bansanren mm-hmm. or what have you um, joining their ranks. Uh, By the oh, way, you see that. for non-Chinese speakers is uh, native Taiwanese. Yeah, versus um, the controversial phrase Waisanren, which means kind of like an outsider uh, huh. for people. But I do think that… Uh, That's
1: applied uh, to the… Families of people who came over after 1949. Yeah,
0: that is correct. Yes, and if it were not for Li Demhui acting as sort of like, uh, uh, you know, making all these changes, that he didn't have to. He again, he could have been dictator for life easily. Uh, mm-hmm. He he, di- and he made all these masterful political moves. Uh, you know, there were some minor mistakes here and there, but in their overall picture, the KMT still effectively hasn't really recovered. Uh Joe was sort of like a like a slight bip back, but to this very day these factions are still fighting. The KMT has never got back on its two feet. And I don't know if it ever can. And a lot of that, actually, all of that can be attribute, attributed to Li Denghui. And then, again, there's the, the whole election of democracy. Taiwan today would not be a freewheeling democracy if it were not for Li Denghui. Or it might have become one, but way down the line. There's a counter-argument
1: and that I've heard that a fair number of people believe. And I think there's some truth to it, but I don't think it's... And that is that basically Taiwan and the KMT, the reason why they finally agreed to more democratize was that the U.S. and other countries were moving closer to China and Taiwan is a military dictatorship, uh, you know, under martial law or a one party state after was not really in the ideological camp. And so everyone was moving more toward China. And so that Taiwan basically realized that to keep the protection of the United States and good relations with other countries, they needed to democratize. And that was really the motivation behind Jiang Jingguo starting to make a few moves in that direction. Now, personally, I think that's part of the picture. I, I personally think that Lee dung actually, his heart was really in it. And he moved it much, much faster and much, much smoother than it would have gone under a different leader. I really do believe that he actually wanted to do that, not that he was pushed. But I do think that that was part of the calculus and argument that he used within the KMT to convince them to move there rather than that was his primary motivation. I think he was using that to sell to the, inside the KMT as a motivator. But and yep. that he really did want to move democracy forward. Absolutely. But yeah. you know, there's different opinions on this and we don't really know.
0: <laughs> we, we don't uh I I will say that there are people um even today though that Try to pretend that it was Jiang Jingguo that brought democracy to Taiwan, and that wasn't really the case. Just because he, you know, he he called for the end of martial law and and the White Terror period, did it mean that even until the early nineties there was a lot of, uh, you know, problems? It wasn't. It wasn't like he flipped a switch, and then Jiang. It wasn't like uh, Jiang Jingguo flipped a switch, and all of a sudden the repression was gone, and the secret police and so forth. All of that was just boop. Gone. No, what what happened? I think. Uh, what I think is my personal belief is that if Li Donghui wasn't there to, to sort of fracture the KMT, then as you said, it would have taken a lot longer. It might not have happened despite the very hard work of um the activists in taiwan the reason i feel this way is because i to this day i'm not really certain if the kmt was able to fully recognize that without someone like li hui actually pointing the way in pointing out that hey uh, you know we are drastically losing supporters we're drastically losing uh, um, our position in the global stage and one of the ways we can get around that is by actually being the the and I hate this word the quote unquote free China as it was supposed to be Uh, as you know um, Taiwan was labeled free China quote unquote for so long even though it was just one of a brutal authoritarian state and by actually going democratic it did grab uh uh the attention of the world at least in 1996 it was in you know the front covers of at least not the front covers but the front pages of newspapers all around the world even the new york times and you know because you had this democracy just growing out quite relatively peacefully from you know what was what was what was one of the, I think at the time, the longest uh, martial law in human history.
1: Yes, and and I think that it directly led to, for example, in uh, Secretary of State, uh, U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo's statement, where he referred to him as the former Taiwan president. And I think that's significant that he didn't call him the ROC president or Republic of China president or president of free China. And I think Taiwan... I I think that uh, Li Denghui really set the groundwork for that. Yeah. So, all right, on that note, let's wrap this up. All right, be sure to hit like and subscribe and all that good stuff. And thank you for coming on the show, Sean. Thank you so much for having me.
0: 必须体认